Have you ever been around one of those really annoying people who always talk about everything that's great about them? They talk about how good they are, about everything that they've accomplished. They do it especially to you because you haven't accomplished those things, and it's perfectly obvious that you can't stay the same. Well, what starts as annoying becomes unsufferable, insufferable, when you can detect like the bad motivations of their heart in their boasting and their bragging. So if you'll permit me a brief illustration from my life. Um, I used to live in an apartment complex here in Burnsville. My wife and I did this thing called community life. So we needed to get to know our neighbors and put on events. And we got to know this one neighbor in particular, this single guy who was more athletic than me, tall, dark, and handsome, way better than me at everything, probably. And he would always stop Kate and I in the hallway and talk about how good he was about everything. And eventually, he started stopping Kate in the hallway all the time to tell her how good he was at everything. And then when she and I were together and he would talk to us, he would not even look at me. I started to detect that this guy had the hots for my wife and was trying to draw attention to himself while I... Sadly, 30 pounds heavier than when I was when I met Kate, am standing there thinking about how unathletic I am. And I realized this needed to stop. So I posited a well-timed question to him in a conversation, a question that wasn't really a question. It was meant to expose his arrogance. He just finished telling Kate and I that with all of his working out and athletic prowess, he was burning 30,000 calories a day. So I said to him, have you ever looked up how many calories Michael Phelps burns in a day? Olympic swimmer. He looked it up, and to his embarrassment, he did not concede that he just confused 3,000 calories with 30,000 calories. He leaned into this argument that he burned 30,000 calories every day in his athletic endeavors. It's funny how often we can convince ourselves about our glory and our grandeur, and even when we're faced with a question that exposes how silly we actually are, that we lean into that. We don't repent of it. We don't face reality. We are all talk, and there's no action there. James is concerned that Christians that his readers are not all talk, that they demonstrate in their life what they claim to be true about them. This has been his concern all along. You say you know the word of God, be a doer of the word. You say that you're truly religious, well, actually love people and remain unspotted from the world. You say that you should be a teacher, well, demonstrate it in the way that you speak and live. You say that you have wisdom, show it by your beautiful conduct. James starts this text with a question, so I want to start with one as well. Who among you is wise and understanding? I imagine that the first time this letter was read out loud to the original recipients, the reader paused for a moment and allowed everyone in the room to allow the image of the wise person among them to flash in their minds. So who comes to mind? 
Don't say it out loud. Who among you is wise in understanding? What's the criteria that you use to determine whether someone is wise in understanding or not? What does it look like for someone to be wise? Perhaps you're thinking of someone, someone who holds seminary degrees, who teaches in a church, who always has an opinion on whatever matter is referenced, that loquacious person that you know. Maybe you're thinking of an old man who doesn't speak a lot, but he's got thick glasses and gray hair. Maybe you're even thinking of yourself. You've got an education after all. You found success in your career. You found a way to get your kids to do what you want them to do. You're close to being able to upgrade your home, to take another step closer to that life you've always dreamed of. People ask you for advice, so clearly you're wise in understanding. Now, of course, you wouldn't write your name down on the list of wise people at the front of the room. That would be too prideful, but you're certainly thinking of yourself. But maybe you're one of those people saying, anyone but me, not me. I'm not the wise person. I don't know anything. But of course, in a less pressured moment, in a side conversation, you like to express your strong ideas, your opinions of how things should be. You talk about how you can point out the problems with everyone else's decision-making, whether they're politics or pastors or your neighbor or another church member. You don't have the book smarts, but you've got the street smarts. I think when we reflect on that question, at one time or another, every single one of us would have written down our name as that wise and understanding person. This text is for all of us. It's for everyone, whether we would immediately identify ourselves as wise and understanding or not. We all have moments where we think that we're smarter than anyone else in the room. So James' question should draw all of us into this text. Remember, we all stumble in many ways. We all think that we're wise at times when we're really not. So none of us can escape James's question. Who is wise and understanding among you? As he moves forward, he makes plain that truly wise and understanding people will be able to be detected based on the way that they live. Once again, the Christian life is not just a matter of saying or claiming, but actually doing. Just as faith must be displayed in action, so too must wisdom be displayed in good conduct. James's main point in this section is that the wisdom of God will be displayed in the gentleness of Christ. Another way of saying it would simply be that godly wisdom will be demonstrated through Christ-like gentleness. So if you want to count yourself among the wise, you better live in a gentle Christ-like way. That's the ultimate criteria to determine whether you're wise in understanding or not. So this morning, what I want to do is to walk through this text, briefly considering that push that James has for us to demonstrate godly wisdom through Christ-like gentleness. And then I want to consider his comparison contrast survey 
between counterfeit false wisdom, a way of living that claims to be wise but really isn't, and then consider the truly, authentically, genuinely wise way of living that he describes later on. So number one, James urges us to demonstrate godly wisdom through Christ-like gentleness. We read the verse and it seems like James made an error. He spliced some sentences together. By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. He's combined some lines here. Wisdom doesn't produce gentleness. It produces cunning and savvy, power, the ability to shut everyone else down by the words that come out of your mouth. This sentence wouldn't have made sense to anyone in the ancient world, just as it doesn't to anyone in our day. Wisdom and understanding are more commonly associated with intellectual ability, a particular position in rank in a company, the accumulation of wealth or possession. Some people might even monetize their wisdom through their social media presence, gaining followers, positioning themselves as the discernment bloggers, the podcasters who can detect all the problems. Of course, all you need to do is support them on Patreon to keep getting their wisdom. In our world, just as in the ancient world, you would expect James to say something like this. By his loud speaking, he should show the intelligence that comes from wisdom. James is going to offer us a very different conception of wisdom, one that has more to do with moral skill carried out in a spirit of gentleness in all of life than it does with a certain degree or a intellect or an ability to respond quickly and poke holes in other people's arguments. James is concerned with the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Now, depending on the translation that you use, you might see the term humility or weakness that comes from wisdom. And all of these are good translations. Whenever you see all of these translations disagreeing on a term like that, it's probably because the word is so rich that you almost need all three to grab onto it. True wisdom will show itself in gentle humility and meekness. This, of course, should be no surprise to those who follow Jesus. By external metrics, Jesus, who was the very wisdom of God, failed to measure up to any standard of wisdom that his contemporaries would have measured him with. He died in his early 30s after a failed mission. His followers only stayed with him for a little while before they left him. From an external perspective, his 33 years of life did nothing for anyone. He was mocked at his death. He wasn't raised up as an example of a wise teacher. But curiously, early Christians depicted Jesus in just the opposite way, as the embodiment of God's wisdom. So if you look at ancient 
drawings of Jesus, he's wearing the robes of a philosopher. That's strange for us to think about. We often talk about Jesus as king or priest or prophet, but he's been depicted as a philosopher, as a giver of wisdom from the earliest days following his resurrection. And as we'll see later in the text, virtually everything that James uses, every adjective to describe wisdom, is something that could be said of Christ. He's essentially saying, then, that if you have wisdom, you're going to look like Jesus. The Jesus who described himself as gentle and lowly of heart. That's convicting. That's convicting because we like to appear as wise and understanding in the eyes of anyone we meet. No one likes to look like a fool. So we adopt a counterfeit view of wisdom and we walk in the way of that false wisdom instead of walking in the way of the wisdom of Christ, of grabbing on to the moral skill that he gives his followers that so often results in suffering rather than success by worldly metrics. And to give a quick point of application to our church on this level. When we think about organizations and their leadership, we always want to put into the position of leadership the wise and understanding people. And when you look at the history of churches all over the place, this isn't unique in the United States, it's true everywhere, many churches tend to raise up leaders who check all of the boxes of the world's standard of wisdom and understanding. If someone is a successful businessman, that's who we want on our board of directors. We don't care how his family life has been. If we're looking for another elder, let's find that guy who is cunning and savvy with finances so that he can lead us to financial success in flourishing in our church. Let's look for the guy who has the biggest house in the best car to lead our church. Maybe he'll pull us along with him into his success. This is a trap that churches fall into over and over again. I just want us, even though we're not considering an elder candidate today, to prepare for the days that we will consider elder candidates and the days that we will consider deacons, to not have our vision of the right kind of person to be formed by our world standards of wisdom, but to be formed by the picture of Christ, the wisdom of God. We have to commit to that now, or else when it comes to decision time, we're going to make the wrong decision. If our theological imaginations tell us that what's good for the church is what's good for the world, we're going to make the wrong decision. So when we look for leaders, we should look for individuals who demonstrate godly wisdom through Christ-like gentleness. And when you try to determine whether or not you are living in the way of the wise, you shouldn't look for cunning and savvy. That's the way of the serpent. Instead, you should look for gentle and lowly heart. So number one, demonstrate godly wisdom through Christ-like gentleness. I feel the burden to pause and say, I I know that I fail in this. All of us could say that. 
we all stumble in many ways. So it is increasingly difficult for us to hold each other accountable to these standards because if we do, then we also have to hold ourselves accountable. And, and I just want to say that that is like, we'll, we're all, we're all going to be hypocrites sometime. That doesn't mean we stop caring about this. It means that we care about it all the more and try to cultivate a culture at our church where wisdom and gentleness mean the same thing. Now, wisdom means more than that, and gentlemen work, mean, gentleness mean, means more than that. A wise gentleman means more than that. My point is, we're all going to feel like hypocrites when we talk about this. Don't let that stop you from talking. We, we can't evade it because we know we fail. Take to heart James's subtle encouragement that we all stumble in many ways, but then also learn from James to not stop with the recognition of stumbling, but to work to correct it. So if we want to be wise, we need to distinguish between counterfeit wisdom and authentic wisdom. He helps us in verse 14 as he goes on to show what counterfeit wisdom looks like and as he calls us to detect it in our church and then to reject it, to to hit the eject button whenever we see counterfeit wisdom in our lives. He does this in three ways. He starts by describing the vices that accompany counterfeit wisdom. He explains its source, and then he describes its result in the life of the community. So the defining features of counterfeit wisdom are in verse 14. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. So here are the vices that accompany counterfeit wisdom. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. This phrase, bitter envy, is really rare, appearing only here in the New Testament, But outside of the New Testament, it's always appearing in contexts where there's rivalry or party attachments, where there are people who are trying to gather others to their side to dominate over the other party, where a personal agenda is being pushed, where people are trying to get everyone else on their side to oppose anyone who disagrees with them. You can see how this works out in a church when churches have to make decisions in parties form and people are driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is that desire that cares only for me and my flourishing, for for what I want to accomplish, regardless of what others need. Ambition is directed at fulfilling our own desires, and it will go to any extent to get there crushing anyone who stands in the way, and manipulating everyone else who can be manipulated. That's bitter envy and selfish ambition. These people are not truly wise. They're not truly religious. They may be crafty and cunning, but they do not have godly wisdom. I think it's worth considering these notions of bitter envy and selfish ambition for just a moment longer, thinking about how it comes out in our lives? How do you become a person driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition? Well, this is how. You look around you, and you see other people who get the success that you think you deserve. You look at others who are living the kind of life that you wish you had, but you can't quite seem to get there. You see advertisements for certain products and lifestyles. You see television shows where Perfect lives are depicted, and you start to get envious. 
Not only that, you wake up one day and realize that some of those people are in your church, in your home group, who are driving nicer cars, have more obedient children, seem to have a better life, and you slowly but surely, in your envy of them, become bitter towards them, refusing to rejoice with them in what they have, begrudging them any success that they might find. And as you stew in your envy, you find this stark motivation to get what you want, even if it means pulling those people down. So no longer are you relating to them, seeking their best interests, putting their needs and wants and desires ahead of yourself. You start to consider yourself as more significant than them. That you'll do anything to get what you want. That's how bitter envy and selfish ambition are cultivated. And when that's allowed to run free in a church, eventually every relationship that you have is a facade. It's a pretending to be nice to them, a pretending to rejoice with them when good things happen, a pretending to be sorry for them when bad things happen, while all the while you're thinking they deserve the bad things that happen and they don't deserve the good things that do. Those should be mine. Sometimes this bitter envy and selfish ambition gets born out of deep hurt. So I want to be very compassionate in this. I understand that sometimes God does not grant people the desires that they have, even when it seems like that's God's normal plan for human flourishing, that it's God's normal plan for people but we live in a broken world and some people experience great loss and deprivation. Deaths of family members, of spouses, of parents, lack of children. Bank accounts going broken when the economy goes bad. I know that some of the selfish ambition and bitter envy that we have comes from a place of hurt. I want to tell you that that is not going to heal the wound that's there. It's only going to make it worse. A wise way to go forward is not to be animated by bitter envy and selfish ambition. You have to shut it down, even if it hurts to do so. James helps us by exposing what's beneath the hurt that drives our, our bitter envy and selfish ambition. He shows us the source of counterfeit wisdom in verse 15. He says, such wisdom, and you should write in scare quotes around that word in your Bible, because this isn't real wisdom. This so-called wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It has its origins in the world, the flesh, and the devil. It has nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. It will do nothing to transform your heart to bring life and healing and peace. It will only bring destruction and death. The origins of counterfeit wisdom is the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that ought to be put to death by Christians and the things that are passing away already. Don't tie into them. They won't last. It promises wisdom. It promises success. These sources promises that they can bring you whatever you need. But they're all going to be turned aside as God finally crushes Satan under your feet. So what's the result of counterfeit wisdom? If you can look past the immediate, that makes it feel like you're getting somewhere. 
the result is described in verse 16. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and evil practice. You might think that by pursuing your own agenda, you'll bring your life into order. You might think that in our church community, that if you can get what you want, it will result in a well-ordered church. That's a lie. James tells you it will ultimately result in disorder. It will result in what he calls every evil practice. When we insist on getting our own way, it opens the door to all of the evil that's lurking in our hearts that we can't even see right now. It will always result in the weakening of the community of the faith. It will make you look less like Jesus in the kingdom of God and more like the devil and the kingdom of hell. James' intent is for us to detect and reject counterfeit wisdom wherever it could be found. And it's interesting to me that the metric that he gives us is something that really only we can detect in ourselves. We can't read the hearts of other people to determine whether there is bitter envy and selfish ambition there. So I think what James is subtly doing is saying, you need to detect and reject counterfeit wisdom. And the place that you start doing that is with yourself. Because all of us would be happy to apply this text in our relationships to other people. We have, after all, suspected that so-and-so has had bad motivations in what they are doing. But James doesn't allow us to peer into other people's hearts. We can do that somewhat as people make known their hearts through their actions. But ultimately, he's trying to call us to examine ourselves, to determine what's motivating our interactions, our actions, our relationships at church, in our homes, in your workplaces. This is a call for self-examination that should extend beyond this moment. Now, before we move on to consider authentic wisdom, I want to give you one point of application besides self-examination, looking inward and seeing what's already there. I wonder if one of the reasons that so many of us have adopted a counterfeit view of wisdom is because we fill our minds and our hearts with the wisdom of those who aren't really wise. We live in a time where every moment of our day could be filled with listening to voices coming through our headphones, through podcasters, YouTubers, musicians, reporters, people who consider themselves wise and who are happy to give their wise take on anything that happens in the world. We let them do it. We give them a space in our head. We allow them to shape our hearts. But unfortunately, most of the voices that we listen to, most of the time, are people who we've never met. We don't know what their family lives are like. We don't know how they relate to others in their church, if they're even a Christian at all. After all, the best discerning people are those who don't identify as Christians anyway, right? Those are the people who are doing the best podcasts. I want to suggest that as you examine the voices that you're listening to, 
that if you detect that they're living according to counterfeit wisdom, or if they're influencing you in a way that you start to act unlike Christ, where they cultivate in your relationships and actions the opposite of whatever gentleness should look like, that you should unsubscribe immediately. If the people that you listen to make you look less like Jesus every week than they make you look like Jesus, stop listening to them. I think that's James's calling on us. Those voices shape our minds, our hearts, our actions more than we would like to admit. And, and this is a problem that's only going to get worse in the days ahead. So we must detect and reject counterfeit wisdom that's already in our heart and those who would influence us to think improperly. Number three, though, we need to request and display authentic wisdom. Request and display authentic wisdom. It's beautiful that James pairs these two things right next to each other because there's such a stark contrast that's there. And where the description of counterfeit wisdom sounds like a battle scene, the description of authentic wisdom sounds like heaven. It sounds peaceful. It sounds like the Shire for all our Lord of the Rings people. It's, it's not mortal. We might forget, because our Bible is split into chapters and verses, that chapter 4, verses 1 and following describe the result of false wisdom, counterfeit wisdom. That's wars and fightings among you. It doesn't lead to peace in the body of Christ. But what he's about to describe does. Now, he doesn't give us a definition of authentic wisdom that you'd find in a dictionary, but he does identify its source. He lists virtues that accompany it, and he describes its result in the life of the community. So exactly what he did with counterfeit wisdom, he now does with authentic wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above, that's its source. It's from above. Authentic wisdom does not come from inside of us. It can't be found in our environment. It can't be found in a news pundit. We can't conjure up wisdom. Instead, wisdom comes from above. It comes from God. Let's rest in how hope-giving that is. You don't have to go out there and find the source of wisdom. It's given to us. God is the source of our wisdom. We don't need to look inside to find it. We don't need to look out there somewhere to find it. We just need to look up to God and ask him for it. If you remember in chapter 1, James has already said that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We wrongly apply that in terms of, God, help me find out what would be the most cunning and savvy way to go about my business plan. That's not wisdom. He's talking about moral skill, the virtues that are about to be listed. So if you lack true wisdom, if you lack virtue, if you lack moral skill, ask God and he will give you generously. He is not going to hold back any of the virtues of Christ, any of the fruits of the Spirit, if you ask him for it. But be warned, if you remember from chapter 1, don't ask half-heartedly. Don't ask halfway thinking, I want the wisdom of the world because I want to be successful according to the world's metrics. Ask wholeheartedly, with an undivided mind, genuinely pursuing the wisdom of God 
that rejects all counterfeit wisdom. So what is this real authentic wisdom? Here are the virtues, the features of authentic wisdom in verse 17. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. In the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now I want to suggest that authentic wisdom could have more virtues associated with it, but James very cleverly picks seven groupings of words to give the perfect description of the perfect kind of wisdom. But it's above all virtuous. It's pure. Purity includes more than just sexual purity, though it includes that, but it refers to the absence of defect, to a motivation that lacks any kind of sin. It's the opposite of envy and selfish ambition. A wise person acts and relates without ulterior motives. They act with pure motives. It is then peace-loving. This notion will be repeated later on, and I think this is one of James's main points. A community of faith that will be at peace has to be a community that's living according to the wisdom of God. Genuine wisdom does not result in conflict and disorder in the assembly, but peace, and the wise person loves peace. Now, we should not be fooled into a false peace. Just as there's a counterfeit wisdom, there's a false peace. There's a kind of peace that says, let me avoid dealing with hard issues and just hope that everyone will smile around me. Well, that's a counterfeit peace. Peace lovers do the hard, patient work of working through problems, not in an antagonizing way, but in a way that deals like Jesus deals with problems, being stern when it's necessary, but being quick to affirm and reassure, to draw others in. It's peace-loving. Next, wisdom is gentle. We've already commented on this. It's like Jesus, gentle, humble, meek, strength under control, we might say. It's not using its abilities to lash out at others or to get its own way. The term used here is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine if every one of us could set aside being overly impressed with our sense of self-importance in our interactions with everyone else, where we, in, where we count all others as more significant than ourselves, where we don't say, because I'm more important than you, why don't you go do all these things for me? Or, or why don't you acquiesce to my demands? It's gentle, humble, meek, facilitating peace in the assembly. Wisdom is then compliant. Again, English translators don't know what to do with this term. You'll find compliant, teachable, a whole list of them. But the point is that wise people are open to be persuaded by others. They're willing to give ground. Now, this shouldn't be confused with being fickle or double-minded or wishy-washy, but it is to say that the wise person isn't always the one who has the answers for everything, but who will carefully listen to other people's answers and judge between them and be willing to give up their opinion and course of action when someone presents a better option. It's being willing to speak last 
instead of speaking first. It's being open to reason, compliant with others. The next descriptors are a pair, full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy, merciful, same thing. There's a person who lives their life showing mercy to others, demonstrating steadfast love, the kind of love described in chapter 2, where people have a need and they're ready to meet it, to find how they can serve others, to make sacrifices for the good of others. They'll be full of good fruits. This is James hedging to say that anything that Jesus did that was good, you'll see that in your life. Any virtue will come through. You'll be full of good fruit. Wisdom promotes the cultivation and growth of virtue rather than vice. Whatever virtue you can think of should be found. Whatever vice should be ejected. The only way that this is possible is because their hearts have been transformed. Because out of a good heart will come good fruit. Authentic wisdom is unwavering, finally. Translators, again, have difficulty with this term, but it's not double-minded. That's all he's getting at. It's not halfway committed to the wisdom of the world and halfway committed to God. They're, they're not divided. They're not motivated by selfish ends on the one hand and the kingdom of Christ on the other hand. Authentic wisdom is without pretense. It's not putting on a front. It's not mimicking virtue in order to get what one wants. The truly wise person is not someone who's cunning and deceptive, making promises and commitments with false pretenses, pursuing a hidden agenda that's actually defined by selfish ambition. Instead, it's an openness to others, a transparency about what someone is doing, someone who's not going to hide the rationale that they're giving. These people can be trusted for counsel, for advice, They can be trusted to hear your situation and not share it with others through gossip as they try to advance themselves. They can be relied on to bring moral skill and wisdom because they have no pretenses and hidden agendas. So what's the result of authentic wisdom? It's described poetically, proverbially in verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. We have to unravel it a little bit. It's memorable, but it's not altogether clear. What James is saying is that those who cultivate peace, that is the peacemakers, those who are blessed in Jesus' beatitudes, are peacefully sowing the fruit of righteousness in the community of faith. These peacemakers are like farmers who are planting seeds of righteousness in whatever field they happen to be in. Seeds that will burst forward into a plant that produces a whole harvest of righteousness. In every interaction, in every relationship, seeds of righteousness and virtue are planted instead of seeds of ambition and strife. This person is truly wise because they're planting the kingdom of God wherever they go. They are, like Jesus, taking the righteousness of the kingdom wherever they are. They seek first after the kingdom of God and its righteousness as they declare the peace of God instead of pursuing their own agenda and planting strife and disorder and division. So how do we respond to all of this? That's that's always the big question. What do we do 
now that we can detect authentic wisdom and counterfeit wisdom? Well, you might take the Benjamin Franklin approach. James has listed seven virtues that accompany wisdom. Conveniently, you could list one for every day of the week and try hard to get that virtue in play on that day of the week. But I can tell you that's not going to work. I can tell you because I've tried that. I was the kid who learned about Franklin's pursuit of moral virtue, and I tried to replicate it. And it worked for a little while, but eventually it became really discouraging because I kept failing. And if that's what you do in response to this text, if you try to say, I'm just going to try harder, that will help you for a little bit, but then ultimately it's just going to prove a judge that condemns you for your failures instead of a guiding north star that gets you to where you want to be. Just trying harder is not the right response. Growth in Christlikeness doesn't work like that. Now there's another equally wrong response, and that's to just stop trying at all because of the discouragement of past failures. So you might say, I hate this list because I don't see these virtues in my life. You know what? I'm going to just stop trying. I'm a massive failure. If God wants me to be wise and virtuous, he'll magically zap me and get me there. And if he doesn't do it in this life, I've heard something about this thing called glorification at the resurrection. So it doesn't matter anyway. I'll just give up any responsibility to live in wisdom and obedience. I'll live however I want. And I'm just not going to think about this again. Those are two wrong responses at the opposite end of the spectrum. So what's the answer? What do we do? I want to urge you to hear the words of James again. If you lack wisdom, ask for it from God, and he will give it to you with generosity, without holding anything back. You see, this is how Christ-likeness works. We can't conjure it up on our own. We have to receive the working of God in our life. And as we submit to the calling and work of God, the natural consequence is true faith and wisdom and virtue in our lives. I would connect this to what Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, where he identifies almost the same virtues. And he communicates exactly the same thing. You can't try hard enough to get there, and God won't zap you to get you there. But what he does do is give you the Holy Spirit who helps to convict you of sin and who helps you work in righteousness, who enables you to walk in the way of Christ and who slowly but surely transforms you through this almost indescribable matrix of God energizing you and you doing work. But it's not you just working hard, and it's not you just saying, God, zap me and get me there. But it's you, as you receive the implanted word with humility, it's you, as your theological imagination and vision of the good life is reshaped, it's you who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take a step forward in obedience, even though it's hard. It's you submitting to the trials that God brings into your life to shape you, to cut off that excess vice and to form in you virtue and wisdom and faith. It's the path of discipleship. It's not easy. That's why James started this whole thing off talking about trials 
that are hard. But it's through those hardships, those hardships that often reveal that you've actually been living according to counterfeit wisdom that allow you to repent of that and to walk in the way of the wisdom of Christ. So pray, appeal to God with an undivided heart, repent of counterfeit wisdom, and receive and walk in the wisdom that can come from God alone. Let's pray that God would do that for you, for me, for us as a church. Father, we thank you for this text, even though it says some things that we might not like to hear, even though it can act as a judge that condemns us. Would you convict us where we need to be convicted, but then would you quickly assure us of the forgiveness that you offer in Christ, and would you put our gaze on him, on Christ, the true wisdom of God? Would he be our vision for what wisdom looks like in this world? And then would you transform us into his image by your power? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.